0: Good morning, how's everybody doing? It is it's very good to be with you today. I always consider it an honor to have a chance to share with you and thank you for the chance I got. Um, you can tell Preacher Keith has been on sabbatical for a while and they've gotten so desperate they asked me to come up and speak again. So uh, I, I know we miss him dearly and I can't wait to have him back, but it is it's truly an honor to stand in for him today and speak to you. Um, thankful to be here. I want to start out by telling you a story that I think once you hear it and then once you hear what I have to share today, I think you'll see the connection. I don't want to spend too much time drawing the connection, but I just want to tell you the story and then as we get into the passage, I think you'll see where it, where it ties in. Um, as many of you know, over the Christmas break, my family was home from India. There were missionaries there and they were home staying with us to be with us for Christmas. And so that we could all be together, we spent most of the break I uh, staying at my grandparents' house, and they're here with us today. Um, we stayed with them for for a couple of weeks, and Demi and I have a dog named Hank. He's a Black Lab Great Dane mix, so he's a real small dog, um, and uh, he he's used to staying inside. He's used to being in our house where he can roam around freely and do whatever he wants to, and so while we were there, we left him outside. He has a, a, a dog there that he's really good friends with, and so they they played the whole time we were there, and... At night, he would sleep on the porch. Well, when Christmas Eve rolled around, it it got really cold that night, and there was a very strong wind. It was really, really windy, and as we were sitting there on the couch enjoying each other's company, we we could look out, and we could see Hank sitting right in front of the glass door just just shaking, violently shaking. I've never seen him like that before. Um, And just earlier in the day, he had been swimming in the lake, so I don't know how it can things can change so quickly, but he was shaking and and shivering and so we started to, of course, as his parents, we started to feel a little bad for him. Um, And so later that night, we decided that we would bring him in and let him sleep in the bathroom where it was nice and warm. And uh, so I didn't want him to be a disturbance to to my grandparents and my great-grandmother and all of our rooms were upstairs so I decided I would sleep on the couch that night right beside the bathroom. So I, I brought him in and he felt the the warmness of the house, and he went into the bathroom and I lay down thinking he's going to love this this is I'm doing him a favor I'm, I'm you know giving him the warmth he needs and the comfort he needs I'm taking care of of my dog here and so I lay down on on the couch to go to sleep and a few minutes go by, and I start hearing the whimpering he's he's not happy and I, I waited a little while I thought I would give him a minute to see if he kind of and I didn't give him any attention if he would just go on to sleep, and he didn't. He kept on whimpering, and uh, he started knocking into the door a little bit, making noise. And so I went in to, to see what was going on and kind of scold him a little bit, telling him, be quiet, go to bed, people are trying to sleep. And it didn't work too well. Uh, I laid back down, and again, he, he jumped right back to it. So I had that moment that I'm sure parents in here have had, because I know my parents have had this moment where I just said to myself, all right, if that's what you want, we can play this game. Um, And I I let him out, and I took him back right outside into the cold and let him sit on the porch again, and laid back down to go to sleep. And uh, 30 minutes went by, and my conscience was getting to me. I just felt bad. Uh, And So I went back out and let him back in, and as I'm bringing him back in to go to the bathroom, he knows right where to go. He goes right back into the bathroom without me even holding him. And I'm thinking, surely he gets it. Surely now he will understand He's experienced the nice warm bathroom and the pallet we made for him, and he's felt the shivering cold. Surely he's got it. He'll be good to go. He wasn't. And so that set off a cycle that whole night an hour in, an hour out, an hour in, an hour out, and I was just the, uh, the I was up all night just pulling it, taking it from one room to the other just to try and keep him quiet. And uh, he never really settled into the bathroom, uh, never settled into the warm. He consistently wanted to go right back out uh, and start shivering again. I'm gonna leave it at that. That's my story. I wanna see if you can draw any kind of parallel into what I want to say today. All right. We're we're gonna be in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you wanna follow uh, along with me there. Start in verse one. And before I can I can read to you, I need to kind of give you the background, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance. I'm going to go back a little further than I have to um, because I want to show you a pattern. I want to show you something that's happening in Old Testament history up to this point that brings us to where we are today because that pattern is very important. All right, so we're, we're getting ready to hear from Samuel, this judge of Israel, but we got to go back to the start of, of Israel, and we, we know it began when God made a promise to a man named Abram. We had this old man named Abram, and God made a promise to him. He said, "Uh, I'm going to bless you with a child, and I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and those descendants will be my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. And he he tells them, they will be blessed, and through them, all the nations will be blessed. I'm going to use your people to be my people, and through them, the world will be blessed. He made that promise, right? Way back in Genesis. And so we know how the lineage begins. Uh, Abraham has a son who has a son who has a son. And we get to Jacob. And Jacob, symbolically, his name is changed to Israel to represent this nation of Israel, these chosen people. And he has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. right? And this is where we really see it beginning to take off. And One of those sons is Joseph. And through Joseph, all of the tribes wind up in Egypt, right? And at first it's on good terms, but then Joseph dies, the Israelites start to multiply, the Egyptians get afraid, they get scared of this nation inside their boundaries, and so what do they do? They enslave the Israelites. And for years and years and years, these Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians. They begin to complain and grumble and doubt this promise that God has made to them. And so God shows up. He sends a man named Moses Moses goes to Pharaoh and we see God's power in the ten plagues that were performed showing that he's greater than these Egyptian gods, greater than this Egyptian Pharaoh. And through God's power, the Israelites are set free from their their slavery in Egypt. With Moses as their leader, not as their king because God has established himself as their their king, but Moses is their leader. He's he's in a way a messenger of God. His word to the people and he leads them towards the promised land. But we have a lot of road bumps along the way because we see this cycle beginning of man forgetting what God has done. God does something miraculous, does something amazing to show himself, and then man so quickly forgets when they're faced with some kind of conflict. And what do they do? They find some way to take matters into their own hands. Right? Find out a better solution, and they forget what God has already done for them. And this... This continues and continues, and then Joseph, I mean sorry, Joshua takes over as leader, and we see the same thing happening of, of the people forgetting God and, and forgetting what he's done for them as their king. And when Joshua dies, we, we enter a, an interesting period of time. We call it the, the time of the judges. And this is a, a period where the Israelites would abandon God and God allows them to be overtaken by some enemy and and they experience some kind of defeat. And then what does he do? He he raises up some judge, some some leader to come in and save them and bring them back and lead them. And this happens over and over and over and over again. These judges. And we get to a judge named Eli, right? And, and Eli eventually raises Samuel. Samuel's not his son, but Samuel was, was uh, devoted to the temple at a young age because he was born uh, as a miracle through, from his mom, Hannah. And so Eli is our judge. And then next we have Samuel. Samuel's the last judge. Samuel's the best judge. Uh, he's a prophet. He's a priest. Um, he does great things to lead Israel despite their waywardness, despite the fact that they constantly turn their backs um, and, and go and, and seek these other avenues, um, these other places to find loyalty. And that brings us to where we are here in, in chapter 8. And I know I went back a lot further than I needed to, but again, you need to see that pattern, that cycle of God doing something, people forgetting, people taking matters into their own hands. And then God finding a way to rescue them and bring them back. This is the cycle of, of the human story from Genesis all the way up to where we are here in 1 Samuel. And we're going to see it happen once again as we read this passage. So read with me, starting in verse 1, he says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. Now, this is important for us to note right off the bat, or off the bat, Samuel is not stepping down and retiring and passing on the baton to his two sons. Samuel is still acting as judge. It says in the chapter right before this, verse 15, that Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. So we know Samuel's not retiring here. He's not stepping down. He's not passing things on to his sons because that's not the way the system works. This was not a dynasty where one man led and when he died, his son took his place and when he died, his son took his place. This was a system where God appointed a leader and the leader would would lead Israel as long as he was... Told to, and then the next one would come up. So this is not handing things down to the next generation. This is just these two guys, his sons, acting as deputies, acting as uh, helpers to their father who's getting old. He can't travel as much. He can't do as much as he used to be able to, and so they're acting as kind of his assistants here. All right? Verse 2 says, The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and accepted bribes and perverted justice. We see already, Samuel's raised these boys in the right way. It says they didn't follow his ways, so he did show them the right way. He raised them the way he should. He even named them, names that really would give them a good thing to aspire to be. Uh, If you look at what those names mean, Joel uh, means Yahweh is God. Yahweh meaning I am. I am is God. The God that brought us out of Egypt. He is our God. Right? And then the other son, Abijah, means my father is Yahweh. My father is, Yah- is I am. So these guys were born in the right environment, born with the right teaching, but they get a taste of power, they get a taste of, of leadership, responsibility, and they're quickly corrupted. Um, they go after dishonest gain. It says they perverted justice. Uh, not suitable um, people to follow the good that, that Samuel has done. And so in response to this, because of Samuel's age and because of his sons, the elders come together. The elders of all the tribes of Israel, they come together and they've got a message for Samuel. We see this here in verse 4. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways, so now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. What their intro? They're here to request a king. They have a favor they want Samuel to do for them. A message they want him to give to God. And here's their opening line: "Hey, Samuel, you're old, and you're a bad parent, and you're not fit to rule anymore. Give us a new king." How is that supposed to? That's not how I was taught to butter somebody up when I needed something done. I was always taught you give them a compliment, you you. You stroke their ego a little bit, make them feel nice about themselves, and then you swing in with the request, right? They jump right in. These guys are desperate. They're on a mission here. They say, Samuel, you were too old to rule us, and there's no way you can pass this on to your sons, and we need someone to lead us. Give us a king. We, we need a king to rule us. Interesting request here. Now before we move on, I want to look just in those verses right here. I think there are three attitudes uh, and, these, and these elders and that represent the whole nation here uh, that I think we might need to be careful aren't true of us. Three reasons that they would want a king here. First, we, we see the ignorance of the people. Why, why did they say they wanted a king? They said, give us a king such as all the other nations have. And then if you look later in the chapter... Uh, Verse 20, they say, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. Why do they want a king? They want want a king to be like everybody else. And that shows me ignorance in in their understanding of God's purpose for them. Remember what I told you at the beginning about when God made the promise. What was the purpose of that promise? It was so that the people, that God's people would do what? would be a blessing to the nations. Would rise above the nations. But it set an example for the nations. God's plan was never for them to be like all the other nations. God's purpose for the Israelites was never for them to just be mediocre, normal like the rest of the world. And yet, that was what they wanted. They wanted to be conformed to the rest of the world rather than to be the nation of God. To have the esteem and the, the honor of being God's chosen people. Special people. We might call that silly, but I can see times where I've done the same thing. Where God has called us, as His church, to be a city on a hill. To stand out and be different. And all we want is to fit in. All we want is to look like everybody else. Have what everybody else has. King. Give us a King so we can look like the rest of the world. That to me shows some real ignorance about God's purpose for their lives. Secondly, we see their forgetfulness. They've forgotten what God has already done. How He's already proven Himself. Their their other two reasons are, you're too old to lead us, and your sons can't take your place. But they've forgotten that that's never been God's system. When it was too old for When Moses was too old to lead the people, God brought up Joshua. When it was too old for Eli to lead the people, God brought up Samuel. God has provided a leader for them when they needed one. And in terms of the sons taking over, it it wasn't that it was a system of your son will take your place, it was I will appoint a leader. And the people have forgotten God's plan, God's way of doing things. Why? Because they're, they're put in a situation of conflict. And they're rushing to find the best solution. They're rushing to take matters into their own hands. If, if you're wondering what that, that conflict is, he talks about it in chapter 12. He says that, that Nahash, the leader of the Ammonites, is approaching. He's coming towards these Israelites. And they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to be attacked. And they say, we need a king to lead us. To take us to victory in battle. Because we have an enemy approaching us. And you can't do it. And your sons can't do it. we got to have a king. Give us some man to lead us. And they've forgotten. The king that led them out of Egypt. The king that split the seas for them. The king that provided manna for them in the desert. They've forgotten their king because they're in a situation of conflict. This king has already done everything he needed to establish a relationship with them. He's told them He's going to go up before them and behind them. He's made a, a covenant with them. We look at the Levitical law in the book of Leviticus. And that looks a lot like the kind of law that, that a king would give for his subjects, for his people, for his citizens. This is an agreement between me and you. He's done all that. He's met the requirements of king. And when, they brought, when he brought them out of Egypt, they were all quick in Exodus to say, you shall reign forever and ever. The word reign is what a king does. They had a king. They were too forgetful to, to rely on him. So they're ignorant to God's plan. They're forgetful of God's character, what he's already done. And then finally, I see arrogance. They're arrogant in themselves. Look at what, what it says in verse 6. But when they said, give us a king to lead us. This isn't, there wasn't a pretty please right before that. There wasn't a uh, if if you're okay with it, we'll take a king. This is a demand. This is not a request. Maybe your your heading for this chapter is like mine, and it says Israel demands a king. This is not a polite thing here. These are God's people, God's subjects, demanding something of their king. When does that happen? That's not how the system works. The king makes demands of his people, not the other way around, right? But in their arrogance, thinking far too highly of themselves and far too lowly of their king, here they are making a demand. Give us a king. Now sure, they're asking Samuel, but they're asking him so that he'll ask God. So they're asking this of God. And God makes it clear here to Samuel too. He says it in verse 7. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God takes this, this demand personally. They're saying, God, you're not enough. How arrogant of the Israelites to say, God, you are not enough to be our king. What arrogance there is there. So they make their demand. And God is not caught off guard by this. God is not surprised. Matter of fact, if you go a couple books back in Deuteronomy, He actually prepared them for this. He told them, there's going to be a day that comes when you have a land of your own. And I won't spend too much time here, but I've got to read it to you so you know that this is real. In, In chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, here's what He says, starting in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. God knew this was coming. God knew that despite all He had done to prove Himself for them, they would still not be satisfied. And they would one day, they would one day ask for a king to take His place. So this demand doesn't catch him off guard. He's not surprised by it. Samuel maybe a little bit, but not, not God. Look at how Samuel reacts to this demand. It says in verse 6, that this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Now how does Samuel's reaction to conflict look different than the Israelites? The Israelites see the Ammonites coming and they're in trouble. They see their leader getting old. They see his sons uh, being wicked. And they say, we got to take matters in our own hands. We've got conflict. we got to figure out a solution. Samuel, on the other hand, is faced with this same conflict as well as being faced with the idea that these people are turning their backs on me. And they're turning their backs on on their king. And how does he respond? Does he take matters into his own hands? Does he rack his brains for a solution to figure it all out? He says it displeased him, and he went to the Lord in prayer. Which one are you? When you are faced with some difficulty, some trying circumstance, are you quick to run and find a way to solve it to take matters into your own hands to look for some worldly king to do it for you, or do you do what Samuel does and and go to the Lord in prayer, trusting in the character of your king to meet your needs I got to confess i'm I, I you know i'm not uh the perfect example here of that, even as I was working on this sermon this week i'd been for a couple of weeks been reading different uh you know, studying different commentaries and, and listening to sermons and trying to collect all these notes for, for what I was going to speak on. And uh, Friday and yesterday, uh, I tried to take all that I had and condense it down into some notes that I could actually, you know, what I really needed to say, and I was struggling with it. I could not figure out. I had about three hours worth of stuff I wanted to say, and I knew you guys would stone me if I did all that. And so I was trying to, you know, filter it down. What, what do I need to say? What do I have to say? How do I organize this? And so, in my frustration, I started to procrastinate. I started to look for errands I could do around the house. Demi loved it. I did a lot more than I would normally do around the house because I was trying to avoid having to sit at that computer screen because I couldn't figure it out. And then I even went as far as to text my dad and say, pray for me as I try to figure all this out. I'm struggling. I can't figure it out. And then as I'm sitting there reading his response to me, it it hit me that I had done the same thing that I'm up here talking about the Israelites for doing that. I'm faced with something that I don't understand, some difficulty, some struggle, and my instinct is to try and solve it. My instinct is to try and work it out. Take matters into my own hands. Or go to somebody else to figure it out for me. Find some other king to do it for me because I can't do it on my own. When What my first step should have been should have been to go to my king and ask him, give me clarity. Help me figure this out. Show me what you want me to say. So this can happen to us. At least it can happen to me. It does a lot. So they make this demand. And how does does God react to their demand for a king? He says, so be it. That's what you want? You want to be out in the cold? I'll walk you right back out. You can can go right back out to the cold. Uh, He says, so be it. But, But before he does, before you do this, let me let you know something. Let me know what let me, let me explain to you what this is going to cost. Let me show you what having a king is going to cost. I want to read that to you. Before I do, let's make sure we understand what life looked like before a king. With God as king, he fights their battles for them. So their victory is insured in him as long as they're obedient. They don't have a standing army that they have to train and provide for. They have a makeshift army that kind of assembles itself when it's needed. And the families of those fighting will provide for the needs of the family. There's no king, so there's no palace, so there's no servants, so there's no expenses. With God as king, Israel runs very smoothly and at a very low cost with a lot of freedom for the people. Now listen to what it's going to look like when they bring in a king. Listen to this. And, and as you hear me read, listen for a little phrase that gets repeated a couple of times. Starting in verse 11. He says, "This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and will give them to his attendants." he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials menservants and attendants your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves what was repeated did you hear it he will take he will take got to be a palace you got to be leaders there's got to be servants there's got to be an army. There's got to be weapons. And somebody's got to pay for all that. Somebody's got to provide all that. Somebody's got to feed all those people. And pay all those people. And train all those people. You want a king? So be it. But he's going to take from you. It will cost you a lot more than you're willing to pay. And For what payoff? For what small payoff That you can look like everybody else. You can be like the nations. Give up having the king of kings who's a sure victory on your side. Go ahead. That's fine. He will take. We need to catch how heavy this is because this is not just about Israel asking for a king. This is the picture of us every time we sin. This is is sin. Taking... God, the king, off of his throne and in its place putting something else that we would rather worship. Be it a person or a thing we can can have or own or a desire, your greed, your pride, your lust, your need to be liked, your status. We dethrone God to place those objects on his altar. That's what we're doing doing exactly what Israel has done here. And I'm here to tell you, you go right ahead, but it will take from you. It will cost you everything. Sin costs way more than you're willing to pay, and its payoff is so small. So temporary. So fleeting. You can have it, but it will cost you. That's the warning He gives these Israelites. And how do they react? How do they respond to this scary, frightening warning? Look at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like everybody else. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. going to cost you? Yes. Do you care? Not at all. I fear that we follow that same trap over and over and over again. Listening to the lies of these little kings that can solve our problems and only make us end up deeper and deeper in the dark. So, he gives them their king. He says, you can have it. It's going to cost you, but you can have it. And that's what they do. He gives them Saul, and they dethrone the king of kings, and they replace him with Saul. And very, very quickly, Saul fails them. God commands him to go and completely demolish the Amalekites, their, their enemies. And he says, oh, That's a good idea, but I've got a better one. I'm going to let the king live, and I'm going to save all of the, 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 the livestock, the good livestock that they have. God, I, your plan's all right, but I've got an addition to make. I'm going to change it a little bit. And That's how his ruling starts, and he does the same kind of thing over and over again. This king that they thought was going to solve all their problems just gets them into more and more trouble. We get David, man after God's own heart, commits adultery and murder. Solomon, Mr. Man of Wisdom, gives in to his lust and has a thousand wives and concubines and is just... Lost. And on and on and on. This long line of kings. The kingdom ends up being split. And we get some decent kings and we get some terrible kings. All of them fall short. All of them miss the mark of what the people thought they were going to get. Because as as Lord Acton says, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. You put a man in charge... Well, let me say, a human in charge. It doesn't work. We saw it with Samuel when he gave some responsibility to his sons. What they do? They, how quick were they to corrupt justice and to, to go towards perversion? It doesn't work. Because man can't fix these problems. Jeremiah, in chapter 17, verse 5, he says, this is what the Lord says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in the, in the leading of another man. We, we cannot, cannot find a king on this planet that will be able to do for us what we really need. It, it can't happen. Every step of the way, Israel was let down by these kings that they so desperately wanted. And I think for us, many of us can say the same thing for our lives we, we've lived a life where either we want to be the king or we're looking to someone else to be the king for us. We're looking for something else to put as a king. We elect leaders and officials and rulers hoping that we can find a way to solve this whole problem. And if I can't do it, somebody else can. I'll find somebody else to do it. I'll be the king of my little kingdom and I'll let you be the king of this bigger kingdom and we'll somehow eventually work it out. Theologian Brandon Smith, he puts it this way. He says, we're always either wanting to be king or we're looking to imperfect people to lead us perfectly. Our kings never fulfill us. And like Israel, we never look to the king we already have. Time and time again, history tells us the story of man trying to take matters into his own hands and coming up short. Why? Why? Because people can't fix people. We can't fix the problem because we're the problem. And there's no law we can come up with, no reform, no idea, no policy, no, no uh, tax reform or foreign plan, no structure. There's no way we're ever going to solve the problem of this world. We've tried it for years and we're still looking because we are the problem. And we've been given the king that we need, and yet somehow we, we want to find it somewhere else. We want to look in another place to find it. When he is the king that we need. And, and here's why he's the king we need because he's the king we can never be. He's the ruler we could never be. We could never elect him, someone like him. We could never place someone in office like that, no ballot box could ever find us a leader like Him because only He can do what we can't do. But we've rejected Him from the beginning. You think about it. From the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, we have turned our backs on the King that we needed because He wasn't quite what we wanted. We wanted something else. And so we, we ate the apple. We worshiped the golden calf. We built altars for the Baals and the Asheroths. We intermarried with other, into other religions. We picked Barabbas over Jesus and put Him on a cross. And even today, we worship our comfort and our security at the cost of our obedience and our devotion to our King. From day one, we have turned our backs on the King that we needed. And I can't figure out why, because look at Him. King of justice, and yet somehow also mercy. He's a King of unlimited power. Of infinite wisdom. He's undefeated. He's never even been rivaled. And unlike other kings who would stand in the background and send their warriors out front to do the fighting, this king went to the front lines. He gave himself for his people. That's a good king. And that king deserves all of our allegiance. That king deserves our full devotion. Our full praise. Our whole life. That is a good King. Despite our arrogance and our ignorance and our forgetfulness, we cannot deny His faithfulness. He has stood by us. He has brought us out time and time again even though we didn't want Him. I want to close with this. Listen to what he says to the people, uh, this is in chapter 12. Once they've realized it, they finally realize what they've gotten themselves into, the mistake they've made. Listen to what he says to them and be encouraged by it. Chapter 12, starting in verse 20, it says, Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. Listen to this. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. That's good. That is good news. He was pleased to make you his people. And even though you have rejected him, even though you have chosen something way less than him to take his spot, he has not rejected you. Because he delighted to make you his own. This king deserves our allegiance. He deserves our praise. He deserves to be trusted with our petty affairs. He deserves to be worshipped with all that we have. I want to challenge you to, like Samuel, instead of following your gut and trying to take matters into your own hands trust the king that you have he, he's got you covered and if you've never trusted in him if you've never surrendered to him surrender yourself to the king he's worth it he has everything you need let's pray God we thank you for your word Thank you for what it challenges us to to believe, what it commands us to do. God, we also thank you for what it says about who you are and that you have stuck with us even though we have time and time again turned our backs on you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your leadership as our king. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you. Help us to stay the course. We thank you for who you are. And we pray, amen.